I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking about the far-right Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin, often referred to in both the mainstream and alternative-slash-independent media as Putin's Rasputin, or Putin's Brain. He's recently been in the news headlines after the death of his daughter, in a fiery car explosion. But what is Dugin's significance to the Putin regime in Russia? Our guest Ramon Glazov, whose writings have been featured in such publications as Jacobin and Overland, argues that it is vastly overstated. In addition to discussing Dugan, we'll also be speaking about such related figures as the occultist Julius Evola and the modernist poet Ezra Pound, both of whom can be considered far-right intellectuals, whose influence on regime decision-making Ramon believes has been overstated in a way that has negative consequences for understanding the ways in which regimes operate. So with that in mind, let's get right to it with Ramon Glazov. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a writer that I'm very interested in speaking with again, Ramon Glazov, who has written for Jacobin, Overland Magazine, and also recently translated the 
stories of Giorgio Di Maria, uh, the transgressionists and other disquieting works. I believe it's uh, five tills of weird fiction. Is that right, Ramon? Yes, it is. Um, it's a rather odd selection of fiction from 1960s Italy that delves into uh, particularly the, the city of Turin, its sort of black magic subculture and um, that sort of weird moment in Italian history when um, there were a lot of sort of radical political groups uh, trying to take over the country. So um, that was a quite a um, intense project, and I'm glad that it's it's now available. Um, so it's come out from Talos Press. And um, it's got some beautiful cover artwork as well. Yes, uh, that's done by an artist called Celine Bridge in my home city of Perth. And um, I worked with her to commission it. And um, so uh, I'm that's another proud achievement in the book. So Uh, you've uh, been looking into, um, I guess, uh, how you would put it is a sort of esoteric uh, topics, um, you know, topics that are sort of beneath the surface of the the mainstream. So why I wanted to have you on is because we were going to talk about uh, Alexander Dugan, who is in the news lately. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add before we get into that, but. I don't know. We can go ahead. Okay. So for people that don't know, uh, Alexander Dugan has sort of gotten this reputation ever since the election of Donald Trump here in the U.S. of being called uh, Putin's Rasputin. Um, and he does sort of lean into this image of being, you know, this <laughs> sort of mystic uh, figure, you know, with this long beard and just his apocalyptic sort of rantings. But for people that don't know, how would you describe Dugan? Uh, well, Dugan, um, he's uh, an interesting, I guess, far right Russian figure who um, his reputation as Putin's advisor or Putin's favorite philosopher is quite exaggerated and uh, largely the result of misreadings by um, journalists in the West who don't follow Russian politics very closely. But um, he's unusual, I guess, because um, he's the founder of a far-right party called the Eurasia Party. It's basically a micro-party with no real legislature seats in Russia. Um and uh, so he's always been a bit of a fringe figure that sometimes appears as a talking head in Russian media. And um, he uh, he's notable in particular for being a traditionalist, uh, the Russian offshoot of traditionalism. And um, for those of you who don't know, that's a kind. Of, that's a stream of uh, far right thinking that um, it da- it predates the war, the Second World War, but it became um, particularly notable in Europe after the Second World War as a kind of adaptation to or a kind of uh, damage control after the defeat of the Axis powers, and um, uh, it's particularly. One of its uh, probably its core feature is it's not so much like American fascism that's interested in or American white supremacist ideology that's uh, all interested in misinterpreting IQ uh, theories and uh, tries to gain scientific credibility. It's really a movement that um, is very, very deep into the occult and um it claims, its chief claim is that there is something called the tra- a tradition or the tradition 
where it basically blends together a salad of just about every pre-modern thought system in Europe and Asia and claims that it's a single fascist primordial tradition that modernity... Does this, does this get into the idea of perennialism at all? Um well, it seems that it does have a sort of timelessness to it. That it uh, in their in their thinking, they seem to dehistoricize all of these different systems of thought: alchemy, yoga, paganism, Christian mysticism, and they uh, they treat them all as one kind of you know a monolithic tradition that um, stands in opposition to modernity, and uh, so. They became, they're particularly notable, I guess, in uh, in Italy, like their biggest thinker, who I'll discuss later if there's time, Julius Evola, who um, he was a sort of hanger on to, the, to Mussolini and sometimes to the SS. He was never really a big decision maker or really had sway over them or, uh, and he was still to a large degree an outsider from the fa- fascist party, but a more of a fellow traveler. And, um, the traditionalists, they, yeah, their other characteristic is they're fairly, um, they have a lot of affinities with continental philosophy, so they're anti, uh, anti-empiricist, anti, uh, um, anti-enlightenment, and definitely they're not like the US type of white supremacist who claims, uh, you know, the, with bell curve type of uh, IQ um, theories that believes, you know, that IQ is the <clears throat> is the key to the social decline. And um, they uh, they're also not very keen on biological racism. They believe in spiritual races, but often it just boils down to similar sorts of prejudices, but they justify it with claims to uh, that race is spiritual rather than um, genetic. So Dugin is very much a Russian offshoot of that. He's very influenced by the French far-right traditionalists like Alain de Benoit, um, and uh, definitely he's an Evola fanboy, and um, in general, as with a lot of traditionalists, he distances himself a little bit from, you know, or he claims to distance himself from uh, the fascism of the Axis powers by saying, you know, uh, Evola, he wasn't technically, he technically, he criticized the fascist party. Well, actually, um, so he's claimed, he's written this book called The Fourth Political Theory, which claims to be a, a sort of revision of classical fascism and um, sort of whitewashes it by uh, claiming it's ethnocentric but not racist. So <laughs> um, that's his. Uh, th- that's kind of his calling card. And um, his. Uh, but on the, the question is though that the way that he's been presented as uh, this mastermind behind Putin um, and this bombing. Uh, I don't really, I can't really comment on who bombed his uh, his car and killed his daughter, um, but it's a little bit of a weird choice as a bombing target because he's not he's not a crucial, really a crucial figure to the Kremlin either as a propagandist or as a um, strategist. So he's not even. Um, He's not like the Steve Bannon of the Kremlin. Uh, with Bannon, in case you don't know, he does 
claim to follow Evola. I mean, he does claim to be influenced by Evola, though it's um, a little bit ambiguous how that re- how that was supposed to be reflected in Trump's uh, strategy. And um, the Bannon actually, of course, was a White House advisor for as long as that lasted. Uh, not too long, but, you know, he got kicked out. But he at least could claim that he was a White House advisor, whereas... Uh, Dugin has never actually held any sort of a Kremlin advisory post. So um, we can, I guess, maybe we can go into how this is this um, exaggeration or this sort of um, cast uh, trying to. Um, how journalist- the sort of myth of, of, of Putin's brain, I guess, uh, yes. becomes yeah. significant. And I, I think it has a lot to do with um, a book he wrote that I don't think has ever been translated into English called. Uh, the foundations of geopolitics is that right yes um yeah the um there actually is like an english version that was like a very scrappy english version uh that uh was just plugged through google translate that is gives a it, it gives a fairly clear picture of what the book says but it's just a bootleg sort of version that's available um and uh i guess we could talk about his history um Dugin, he it's a bit murky how he emerged. Like in the 1980s Soviet Union, he was apparently kicked out of an aviation academy for so he was a dropout or possibly expelled for uh, anti-Soviet uh, political activities and black something involving black magic. Um, so like way into the 80s, he was definitely into uh, occultism and Alistair Crowley, supposedly. And um, he got involved in uh, a few different far-right groups. Uh, I think initially Pamyat, which means memory, that's like a skinhead or neo-Nazi sort of group. Um, And uh, he, in the 1990s, he started, he co-founded the National Bolshevik Party. Uh, So that was... um, that was a very odd, odd sort of project because it's uh, he his co-founder was Edward Limonov. And it was a bit of like a he's like a punk icon within Russia, yeah. sort of counterculture figure. Yeah, yeah. Limonov is like a yeah a Byronic sort of punk writer, and uh, from reading Emmanuel Carrere's biography of him uh, about that phase of his life, um, it appears that he wasn't particularly knowledgeable about Russian far-right history, uh, much to Dugin's chagrin. Um, and uh, so he brought along, it was really a, a fusion, that party of the far-right elements that Dugin brought along who were like serious uh, Russian fascists, like um, trying to... Um, Part of that Russian fascist tradition that dates back to the Black Hundredists in the late Tsarist era and the certain elements of the White Russians. And um, uh, Limonov apparently didn't even know, like, the history of the White Russian sort of far right. And uh, while Limonov brought in all of these, like, punk kids, like, the, you know, sort of teenagers who are into punk rock, weren't didn't have any particular ideology they just wanted to shock people and shock the establishment and um shocking the establishment is Limonov's main shtick like so it's, uh, it, real, real quick not to interrupt you but it, it's sort of like what um what you know a band like the sex pistols would do when uh you know sid vicious would wear the swastika or you know uh, susie from susie and the banshees would yeah. wear a swastika armband just to like piss off the older parents 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, Limonov's like symbol for the his uh, party was like a white circle over a red field with instead of a so it looks a bit like a Nazi flag, but the black icon inside the circle is a hammer and sickle. So it's a fusion of Soviet and Nazi imagery. And you have to remember that Russia lost 27 million people fighting the Nazis. So uh, that was a huge fuck you to a lot of Russians. So who, you know, generally had a very, um, uh, you know, martyrous veneration of its uh, sacrifices during the Second World War. So, um, and uh, anyway, they split up, the, you know, the band split up. So Dugin went on to found this this so-called Eurasia party, um, which uh, claims to have, you know it claims it wants to start a Eurasian a great Eurasian empire, and its symbol is an eight pointed star, which is um, that comes from British fantasy fiction as a chaos symbol that's uh, been popularized by Warhammer. Um, Michael Moorcock as well. <laughs> yeah, Michael Moorcock, British fantasy fiction. You know the. So he's, it's like a British fantasy fiction symbol of this eight-pointed star of chaos, uh, which is a bit metal. Um, and as for his actual political ties, now, um, a lot of reportage claims that his geopolitics book was taught in military academies, but there's no source for that that anybody's, the hard source for that that anyone's found, like the... It seems to go back to a 2004 article which says presumably his book is being taught in the Russian military academy, but it's not, um, uh, nobody can find a source that actually says it's been required reading. But uh, in the. There's like one article that sort of says that, and everyone keeps going back to that one article, right? Yeah, and it's like a game of telephone or Chinese whispers, as they call it in Australia, where uh, journalists, some journalist quoted that article, then another journalist quoted that journalist's article, and then it sort of mutated into Dugin being Putin's favourite philosopher. Um, and I'm just going to say for the record that um, none of this excuses Putin. Like, I'm not saying that, uh, frankly, his war in the Ukraine is abhorrent to me, and uh, I'm not... If, if Putin isn't influenced by Dugan, it doesn't excuse anything he's done. But it's, on the other hand, it's um, stupid to try to turn to Dugan as the mastermind that explains all of this. So um, his actual ties to the Russian establishment, um, now they're a bit tenuous because uh, that article that everyone keeps quoting doesn't reference really contemporary Russia, but um, stuff that he did during the late Yeltsin era and the early Putin era. So this was the period when Putin was still um, in the G8, still trying to um, uh, take his luck with soft power strategies rather than um, uh, cracking down on opposition or uh, invading the Ukraine. So he was still trying to um, exert sort of soft power on the Ukraine and still trying to keep up the keep up appearances as a liberal democratic politician. Um, and then, so he started to get more authoritarian, certainly after 2011. Um, but at this time, Putin, I mean, the Dugan, he made contact with figures in the military, uh, you know, some general, I believe, but it's not clear what they actually did. Like at most, or you know, the, all we know is that they traded words of some kind. And um, he did meet with some people in the Kremlin. Um, but uh, on the other hand, the people that he's listed as meeting with have since been expelled by Putin. So um, 
Gleb uh, Pavlovsky. Um, Dugan apparently knew him. Again, it's not clear what their interactions actually actually led to, but um, his uh, some of those old figures that he had relationships with are now been ousted from Putin's administration. And um, another telltale clue that he's not that crucial to the Kremlin or not that tight with them is um, Dugin for a while, even though he has no formal university education, he was a lecturer in sociology at Moscow State University from tw- 2008 to 2014. And then in 2014, when the Ukraine conflict first broke out, uh, he started, he made uh, this bloodthirsty kind of genocidal statement, kill, kill, kill towards the Ukrainians. And there were complaints from students about keeping him on in the university. So he lost his job. And the Kremlin didn't intervene. So the Kremlin didn't protect him basically from student complaints. Uh, and the uh, it didn't seem, he still, you know, he wasn't reinstated. So the university what, what, doesn't appear to have been under any pressure to keep him. Um, and it's and ironically that was over that was over anti-Ukraine statements. Uh, so uh, he um, I don't you know he even though the Kremlin tolerates him and isn't cracking down on him because uh, you know he plays nice with them and doesn't you know he's not challenging Putin or anything like that. He's part of a I guess you can call it systemic opposition where um, that's Russia's current system where. Uh, you know, Putin allows non-United Russia parties to exist from the you know who on paper have politics that's far left, center left, center to far right, but those parties um, they bend the knee, um, and they're allowed to exist because they bend the knee and um, don't really try to undermine him. So um, it's you know a sort of spectacle that, that kind of um, creates the impression of a functioning political system, but uh, it's a kind of a sham so um he's he seems to his actual role for the kremlin um or the actual role he serves the kremlin is the i guess as a kind of liaison to western far-right groups uh um i think richard spencer's wife translated some of his books yeah but, yeah um, yeah and uh, he, I guess what he does is he t- tries to convince them that Putin's on their side. Um, and um, But on the other hand, I mean, the, those Western far-right groups aren't people who hold very much power in the West to, you know, reverse, repeal sanctions or anything like that. So he's got, he's not the, the top, really the top man there or, the, or any sort of top advisor to Putin. But um, anyway... I, I was going to say real quick, it seems like a lot of his backing comes from um, this figure who I don't hear talked about that much, uh, Konstantin Malofiev, um, who runs uh, this TV station called uh, Sargrad. Um, Malofiev. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It seems like his connections to him are much more uh, openly known or, or could be, you know, gleaned. Yeah. Yeah. Than, than the Putin more, connection. Um, he's more sort of, uh, I mean, yeah, he's definitely got ties to that oligarch who's uh, sort of a orthodox nationalist. Um, and, uh, but on the other hand, I guess when you try to look at examples of what his alleged influence on Putin is, 
Um, it all goes back to this geopolitics book, The Foundations of Geopolitics, that he wrote in the 1990s. And um, the it's a bit dubious what, what that book was, uh, whether that book actually influenced anything, because um, when journalists try to point out which of its uh, suggest, you know, which which of its proposals Putin has taken on, the only proposals they can name are annexing the Ukraine and, uh, you know, um, sending disinformation in the West through, I guess, uh, you know, propaganda campaigns. So the first, annexing the Ukraine. Now that is a, that you know, that's not an, a, an idea that Dugin invented. It's a, almost like, it's an extremely popular opinion among Russian nationalists. Like if you ask Russian nationalists who Ukraine belongs to, of course, they're going to say Russia. And it's not as if Dugin came up with that awful idea. And um, so just because this book mentions that it, it's really one of the more mainstream in a, in a Russian context, one of the more mainstream suggestions that his book has. And um they, so it's a case of cherry picking because the other proposals that he makes in his geopolitics book are so radically off center from Putin's opinions that, uh, or from his foreign policy, that um, it's hard to see how he could possibly follow them. So, and some. I hear he has some interesting views on China, but we'll get into that. Ah, I guess. Ah, <laughs> yes. Well, okay. Well, I'll, I'll try to go. I'll go into that and all of his batty suggestions. So, one of his ideas is that Russia needs to start a Berlin-Moscow axis because some thinker from a century ago said that Russia and Germany are natural allies and two world wars later, Dugan has picked this idea up and thinks that somehow, you know, Angela Merkel is the natural ally of Russia. So, uh, and Germany should uh, kind of shake off NATO. I don't know how they're going to persuade Germany to do that, but... Um, that Germany should become Russia's ally and control everything up to the Western Ukraine. So all the Catholic speaking Slavs, uh, Germany's vassals, the Dugan thinks. And um, then his other idea, uh, which is possibly even crazier, is that Russia should confront China. Uh, yeah, he, his book is not pro-China, even though today... Uh, people tend to think of Russia and China as allies, and Putin certainly not uh, not stupid enough to try to start a war with China. I was going to say real quick. I think there's also this idea that because Dugan has appeared on Chinese state TV, he must be pro-China. But that's not the case if you read this book. <laughs> yes, definitely not the case. Uh, what he argues now, this is batshit. He argues that Russia should form an alliance with Japan to confront China. And then it should capture all this Chinese territory, liberate the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, take over Tibet and take all this Chinese territory in a corridor all the way to Vietnam and possibly to Australia. And, you know, so this is this is batshit insane. Like Russia, does, Russia is not in a military position to do that. Um, but if you cherry pick hard enough, I mean, uh, it's worth pointing out that this his idea of liberating Xinjiang province uh, came decades before many Westerners knew what Uyghurs were. So someone could possibly even cherry pick that and say that he, you know, he's Biden's brain or he's the brain of the current Washington establishment. Because, I mean, if you cherry pick his book, you could probably find proposals for, for anything. And um, 
he uh so this idea like i mean that's that's dugan and he spends the the amount of space he gives to the ukrainian the ukraine i should say without the v uh old habit um he the amount of space he gives to ukraine in foundations of geopolitics I mean, it's exceeded by the amount of, uh, by the chapter on China. He mentions Ukraine, but that's alongside a lot, a ton of other proposals and weird theories. And uh, uh, so they've taken, they've basically taken the view of his that's closest to Russian mainstream opinion or sort of Russian, mainstream Russian nationalism and said, hey, he proposed this decades before Putin did it. And I mean, that's... Uh, what that's ignoring is the current war in Ukraine is the result of a long escalation process and, uh, you know, um, Russia's failed bids at controlling Ukraine through soft power, uh, a long sort of conflict, sort of, sort of three-way conflict involving uh, um, or sort of a tug of war involving NATO, Russia and Ukraine's government. So it's not as if this came about simply because Putin started listening to Dugin. It's uh, it has much more concrete preconditions in actual, uh, you know, territorial disputes. So uh, it's really hard to find it's really hard to find any evidence of anything any situation really dictated in a, a foreign policy decision to Putin and has been followed. Um, so. so should we delve into, I guess, the other side of, of Dugan's politics? Because I know, uh, you know, people often talk about his geopolitical views, but there's also this whole idea of um, the fourth political theory where he claims to have, you know, he, he like wants to transcend both fascism and capitalism and all this ah. weird stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, that's a funny book. Um, I read up on that uh, in preparation for this. And... Um, his fourth political theory, now the, this is the thing that uh, traditionalists do a lot, is try to find these weasel positions where they distance themselves from the Axis powers and say, oh, you know, that's not what we really believe um, and sort of work around uh, sometimes grabbing talking points from postmodernism while also claiming that postmodernism is degenerate while on the other hand being very postmodern in a way. So... Dugan's idea um, is particularly in relation to fascism. So he wants to claim, he now claims he has a different brand, the fourth political theory. And um, its cover, it's interesting to note that the book cover of the original Russian tradition, you know, it shows symbols for the three other political theories that he discusses, the hammer and sickle, the dollar sign, the, uh, the fascies. So, and the fourth symbol is a question mark. So, um, and that might sum up his fourth political theory because uh, it's rather nebulous and rather vague on what really is. Um, he only, um, it's very, um, when you try to look through his book on what his policy proposals are or how he plans to run society or what political program he has, he ends up getting sort of lost in a cloud of postmodern definitional arguments and, and philosophy and very goes off into very abstract territory. Like even if you look at his claims about gender, you know, he uh, uh, so he's, he's got a chapter about gender, a chapter about race and things like that. 
So his only sort of statement is that it's based on Heidegger's design uh, and um, how to translate that into a political program is anyone's guess. Um, but what he says about fascism in particular is he tries um, he tries to find this ground where he claims to object to the racism of the fascist project, but praises its ethnocentrism. So he claims to have an ethnocentrism without racism. And um, he defines racism as claiming that one culture is better than another culture. Uh, so he, um, he's trying to claim to be a pluralist who, uh, you know, he does not... Uh, or ostensibly he doesn't uh, state that there is any superior culture, but as long as paradoxically, of course, he still claims that all cultures have to go back to their roots. So traditional culture is to him superior than modern culture, which contradicts that. So, um, and he borrows the talking point, particularly from continental philosophy of uh, saying that, um, you know, in light of the enlightenment project is inextricable from racism because it claims modernity uh, is superior to backwardness. Um, and people have made that point many, many times in sometimes arguing it well, sometimes not. But uh, to Dugin, of course, I mean, if it's racist to say that modernity is better than backwardness, why isn't it racist to say that tradition is better than modernity? Um, so he kind of he kind of goes in circles and contradicts himself. And... Um, the other paradox this sort of attempt at pluralism raises is um, how does he fit his views on the Ukraine his views on Ukrainian ethnicity um, into this sort of um, protestation that he's anti-racist? So what he does is um, because he defines racism as one culture is better than another. He, he claims, of course, that Ukraine doesn't really have a culture, that uh, it's just little Russia. And, uh, of course, denying a culture and trying to assimilate it is still racism, but Dugan tries to use that as an escape clause. And um, in this respect, he does, he has, he has uh, reached a kind of parallel with Kremlin rhetoric, because um, now I'm not the first person to point this out, but the Kremlin, um, since the fall of the Soviet Union and certainly in Putin's um, under Putin's government, it no longer claims to um, have a universalist project of offering the whole world an example of a better way of life, or it's not saying, you know, um, we're communists and we can offer a better system than America if the world will listen to us. It's only gone, it's sort of retreated into this sort of identity politics uh, of, um, you know, the West is this way, Russia is this way, your standards don't apply to us, you know, uh, uh, we need to be judged by our own standards, leave us alone. So... Uh, it, it sort of gets into, I don't know if you've ever seen that BBC interview with um, Dugan where... Uh, you know, you have the BBC interviewer going on about, uh, well, what you're saying isn't true. And then Dugan says, no, no, you must accept the postmodern reality. Uh, you must accept that we Russians have our own special Russian truth, as you have your own American truth, or what, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that, that, that actually irritates me because uh, 
particularly since the election of Trump, there's been there was this idea circulating in the media that Russians are some sort of nation of relativists and postmodernists and don't believe in truth. And it's a kind of orientalist idea that of. Uh, you know, West, uh, it's really a bit racist, actually, saying, uh, you know, Westerners believe, Westerners believe in absolute truth and Russians are relative. And uh, it, um, the weirdest example I saw of that was uh, someone wrote a New York Times column, uh, somebody who'd just learned very basic Russian, apparently. And he pointed out that Russia has two words for truth, Pravda and Istina. Now, in reality, they, they both still mean truth. It's just that Istina means like a priori dogmatic truth. Like a triangle has three sides. That's Istina because you can't deny that with any evidence. Um, while Pravda is truth that's dependent on evidence or dependent on experience. So it doesn't, it's not, it has nothing to do with any kind of relativism or disclaimer of truth. The same logic still exists in the West. You know, there are truths that are uh, undeniable and truths that are subject to evidence. And uh, it's just that Russian has two words. You know, it divides the concept into two words and in, in a, has two different words for that distinction. So uh, it's... This whole this columnist claimed, of course, though, that this shows that Russia has some kind of shifty attitude that uh, um, its truths are really dictated by the government, you know, by tyranny, and you know uh, that people just revise themselves, you know, revise the truth according to what the government says, or something like that. And uh, so those Russian barbarians, and uh, so. Uh, it's a bit annoying that Dugan is actually becoming, you know, kind of lending credence to this horrible view. And um, he's, it's, it's odd kind of his contradictory attitude to postmodernism, because on one hand, he claims that postmodernism is the thing that the fourth political theory is going to fight against and destroy. And uh, he sees it as the decay of modernity. On the other hand, and this is one of the reasons why he probably isn't in a position to be the top Kremlin ideologue. He writes a lot like a 1990s postmodern academic. Um, you know, he uses the word fellow-centrism unironically. Like he writes like the sort of people that the SoCal hoax was parodying. Um of, uh, you know, the, this fellow-centric system of knowledge like that. And um, with a far-right party, in general, you know, in politics, you want to simplify things into sound bites. So that kind of writing doesn't really work in a party context. And uh, he, um, he, of course, has the same opinions as a lot of far-righters. He still believes in Russian nationalism and... Uh, um, He's an anti-Western, obviously, and Russian sort of isolationism. But um, if someone wanted to present those views in a far-right party, they wouldn't be kind of drawing on uh, Foucault or Judith Butler or Derrida. They would just be stating them. And um, so Dugan, because of his occultism and his kind of critical theory obsession, um, he's not a very effective propagandist and it doesn't also really cohere very much of government strategy because uh, uh, strategists are focusing on pragmatic issues rather than um, 
sort of high level theoretical issues. Real, real quick, if you could, I, I know you said he's isolationist, but at, at the same time, it sounds like he, it almost sounds like he wants Russia to partner with other countries to expand its influence. So is he isolationist or is he? Well, I'm, I'm, into, I'm into isolationist in the, in the way that Russia's uh, sort of anti-global, that sort of anti-globalization turn. But uh, of course, that's the paradox of the far right, that even though they, um, they seem to, um, they seem to argue that countries should go back to their traditional roots. They also form a lot of global alliances and um, paradoxically are basically arguing for a global movement. Um, so, you know, a global, a globalized anti-globalism. Um, and, but the point is that, you know, his geop geopolitical proposals are senseless. They don't, uh, um, they don't seem to match any events that, you know, um, the landscape isn't really positioned for Russia to take up those ideas. So uh, I guess we could talk about his uh, Dugan's prototype, the, the sort of um, proto... Real quick, before we get into, I know, I know we, you wanted to talk about Evola, but um, real quick, because I find it interesting, if you could. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned identity politics and Dugan. Um, and I know a lot of people think, oh, identity politics is something that, you know, social justice, like lefty kids do. But I mean, really, you know, a lot of the the right is identity politics, mm. you know, the far right. And uh, his, his identity politics is a very defensive form of uh, identity politics. So could you talk just a little bit about that? Uh, well, He's basically taken, uh, he's using it, I guess, in a, a way similar to Alain de Benoit and the sort of French theory saturated the corner of the far right um, of finding um, pieces of post-colonial theory uh, to justify a sort of relativist attitude. Um, and uh, I suppose, you know, you probably could find rhetoric like that in the Kremlin, but um it's a very old hat trick. I mean, uh, if you look at sort of Middle Eastern theocracies or Hindu nationalists or any sort of group that's accused of human rights abuses, um, you know, that's a, a, some apologists for those sorts of movements will say, uh, um, but of course you're just applying Western standards to us. Western standards don't apply, you know, the um, it's subjective uh, or, you know, it's, um, uh, every culture has its own sort of system of ethics. Um, so that coheres with, uh, that can cohere with the far right, that they can, um, um, and of course there, it also gives them a certain amount of ammunition because a lot of post-colonial theory has, has um, anti-enlightenment talking points. So um, you can find, um in particular, there was an, in Michelle Webeck's novel, uh, if you know Michelle Webeck's sort of a French novelist aligned, uh, fairly sympathetic to, uh, he's often lumped in with the far right, uh, even though he kind of tones it down sometimes. Um, his book Submission, which was like a sci-fi scenario about uh, the Muslim Brotherhood taking over the French government, he... Um, 
He describes a group of far writers that call themselves the uh, the indigenous Europeans, and they use images of Geronimo and kind of Native American resistance fighters to say, you know, where the native people of Europe were resistant to globalization. So this appropriation of um, anti-colonial sort of decolonize rhetoric, um, that's something the far right is very capable of. Um, because they can, you know, they can claim that they're following native traditions, that, uh, you know, Odinism or European paganism, and, um, you know, in a, a set of opposition against the modern world. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, they do, they do have common roots in, in uh, continental philosophy, because Martin Heidegger was a, he happened to have been a Nazi who, um, uh, until the Second World War and uh, well, the end of the Second World War and then kind of blamed um, the excesses of the Nazi regime, the Holocaust on modernity as a sort of escape clause. And um, now Heidegger, of course, you know, he is a respected philosopher, whereas Evola and Dugin are not. Uh, so Heidegger, of course, has a um, far-ranging influence also on uh currents of thought aligned with the left. Um, but they did, you know, he did have a very similar trajectory to the traditionalists and traditionalists often claim him as their own. Um, if that answers your question. No, it definitely does. And I, I want to get into Evola and I want to note here something that I find interesting about all these figures. Um, you know, you mentioned De Benoit and I, I don't know, when I've read De Benoit, I just get the impression a lot of what he's saying is, we Europeans need to just go back to paganism. Uh, I find it very kind of LARPy and very mm -hmm. um, not not politically applicable or, or very like head in the clouds. Um, there's other figures like that, like some of these, um, you know, uh, traditionalist Catholics, people like E. Michael Jones, who think, oh, we just convert everyone's Catholicism. And it seems like a lot of these right wing figures, um, their ideas for solutions to what they see as the problems are kind of bizarre and probably not going to ever happen. That seems to be true with Dugan as well. Uh, but I, I think that could be a good segue into Evola because it, it seems like he's very defeatist in a lot of ways. Yes. Uh, yeah, I guess it's fair to mention Evola because he's such a central figure to that current of thought. Um, and uh, he's a he was a proto-Dugan in the sense of, I guess, a sort of opportunism that he had. Because on one hand, in a sort of halfway positioning, because um, on one hand, he wasn't a formal member of Mussolini's fascist party. He sometimes criticized it, though it was a sort of friendly criticism. Um, and he wasn't actually going to say that Mussolini should be overthrown or anything like that. He was sort of like a, he had, a, a, you could say, observer status in um something equivalent to observer status or being a fellow traveler in these regimes. So he was friendly enough with them not to get uh, cracked down on, but um, he still made enough. Um, uh, he still had that getaway clause after the war that he wasn't really formally a member. And um, at the same time, he, uh, he, for something that he wasn't really part of or claimed not to be part of, he did court these movements. He did court these Axis governments. You know, he hung out with Himmler, I believe. Um, he spent a lot of time in Germany lecturing on his particular theories of race. 
um, and kept trying to get the SS on board with him. Um, and um, even though the SS don't seem to have taken him too seriously, they tolerated him. And um, his particular, his only real beef with the Nazis was that their model of race was uh, based on claims about biology. And um, like most continental philosophers, he wasn't uh, really biologistic. He didn't... Um, he didn't really believe that genetics was the the heart of race. He believed in a, this idea of spiritual races, which uh, would still have um, cohered with a basic program of fascism, but not. Uh, uh, he distanced himself from sort of any sort of uh, claims about genes or inheritance. Um, but at the same time, you have to remember that he did not object to anti-Semitism. He was anti-Semitic, um, and uh, he didn't seriously think the Nazis were doing much wrong at the time. He was, um, uh, the, that's the paradox with these traditionalists is um, after the war, people like Evola and uh, to some extent Heidegger, they claimed, oh, you know, these pro we totally disavow these projects because, you know, they were modern industrialized movements. Uh, we consider them part of modernity. So uh, they're no different. Fascists are no different to us than other modern groups like communists and liberals. But then they never really seem to know. They turned a blind eye to this modernity during the time those movements are actually those uh, parties actually controlled countries. So it seemed to escape them that they were in bed with uh, <laughs> that they were in bed with modernists or in bed with modern industrial, with, you know, fascist movements that were the product of modern industrialized nations, uh, while those parties are in power, and then kind of disclaimed it after the war. And um, his, uh, in the case of Evola, he, um, he then, this position of um, defeat made him revise his politics in a rather uh, peculiar way, because he decided um, okay, modernity is, um, you know, undefeatable at the moment. Um, so his, he lost hope that there could be any sort of resurgent fascist movement that would actually defeat modernity. Um, and uh, even though due, before the, the end of the war, he actually believed, you know, he was actually saying stuff like, oh, uh, um, Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy are going to bring back the ancient powers of the white race. Um, after the war, you know, he suddenly lost this optimism and uh, said, okay, um, we can no longer fight modernity head on. Uh, we have to just sit around and study yoga and wait for it to collapse. That was, I mean, he didn't say it exactly in that way. He said this, he had this metaphor of, he called it ride the tiger, this image of a hero mounting a ferocious beast and riding it until it got exhausted. But ride the tiger, what it boils down to is sort of just do nothing and wait it out. And- um, Wait out for the collapse of modernity, in other words. Yeah. And um, he also became very um, resistant to any sort of technological means of warfare. You know, he, um, because he thought technology was democratizing and corrupting, spiritually corrupting, because, you know, anybody can use a gun. Uh, that was his metaphor that it, uh, 
a lunatic, a great statesman and a soldier can all kill somebody with a gun. So it's a democratic weapon. Um, and he believed instead that people should study occultism like yoga and alchemy, because uh, in his view, it could only be mastered by an elite. So a few superior people. And uh, uh, that was a very you know, grandiose sort of magical thinking, because of course, I don't think, uh, I mean, yoga doesn't really offer people magical powers that could overthrow societies, but it's uh, kind of interesting because one thing I've always said to people is, uh, you know, I, I kind of want more far right wingers to read Evola because I think he's a political dead end. He's essentially politically useless. Exactly. Uh, but that's the issue because the, the right, when people think of Evola's influence, you know, of course, he, he's been, he got media attention, particularly after Trump, because of Bannon being influenced by him allegedly, uh, or claiming him as an influence. Um, the right is really most dangerous when they don't fully copy Evola, because even people who are Evola fanboys, like particularly in post-war Italy, there were, of course, groups that claimed to be Evolians, but they were very unevolian in the fact that they were frigging terrorists. They blew up train stations. They didn't just study yoga, but um, actually engaged in armed attacks against civilians and shot people and, uh, you know, caused all this carnage. And um, in the same sense, uh, Bannon, the most, um, the part of the Trump strategy that got Trump elected in 2016 was basically a, a uh, Definite, definitely against the grain of uh, Evolian thought because it was a popular... it, it was right wing populist rather than elitist. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was a populist strategy. So, uh, I mean, it was a formidable strategy against the Democrats, but um, it wasn't particularly Evolian. Like, if Trump had gone to a rally and said, "You know, you should vote for me because I'm a superior individual who studied uh, alchemy and got you know refined my soul through all the four processes." Uh, <laughs> If he'd gone and started babbling, you know, Crowleyan or Evolian um, occultism, I mean, nobody would have, he wouldn't have even won the primaries. So uh, the um, the core of that whole ride the tiger Evolian philosophy is a bit, ironically, it's a bit like those liberal Wiccans who are saying, let's hex Trump, you know, their response to Trump's electoral victory was, oh, let's cast, you know, spells at him or, you know, sit with candles and try to curse him and, you know, instead of organizing. So, in a weird way, too, not, not to interrupt you, but in a weird way, it's almost like um, Evola's philosophy on these things, it, it almost becomes like it, implicitly anti-political in the sense that hmm. Evola hates the plebiscites. He's screw the plebs. They can't do anything. So I don't know how you can ever build a popular political movement without the plebs, you know, but it doesn't seem like Evola is interested in building that. Yeah, that's, uh, that is why um, he would actually be a good, he would actually be like a good enfeebling influence on the right in the same way that say the sort of critical theory might be on the left if people get sort of get too deeply into it and ignore any kind of political activity. Um, and quibble with its uh, sort of theoretical rigor all the time, um, because it you know it cuts people off from um, you know the population. It uh, creates sort of cultic, cultish uh, sort of intellectual circles where um, just people get sucked in and have to study you know um, 
study occultish ideology and get uh, cut off from normal discourse. And it becomes uh, a form of navel gazing in a way. Yeah, navel gazing. It's a sort of it's a really a retreat from um, a kind of fetal ball position. Um, you know, in response to the shock of uh, Evola's Axis, uh, uh, the Axis powers he admired losing the war. And um, these, uh, it's interesting to, I guess, when you think about the disproportionate attention that um, people uh, give to intellectuals attached to regimes, they try, they sometimes think the intellectual is the, if you look at the intellectuals, they believe that you'll find the key to how the regime thinks and how it operates. People um, confuse the intellectuals for the sort of decision makers of the regime. Yeah. Um, and they, um, because the, I mean, certainly the French left, when they were pro Stalinist, they uh, seemed to imagine the Soviet Union was entirely a, uh, that it made all of its decisions by philosophizing about Marx instead of just having a uh, sort of a um, craven bureaucracy. Um, and uh, the real, I guess the real purposes that intellectuals might serve to a regime, uh, either as propagandists, as I said, or as strategists. So if they don't, if they're not good at either role, they probably, um, they shouldn't be given disproportionate attention. Um, I think Ezra Pound. I might want to mention Ezra Pound as another. I, I actually wanted to get into this. Uh, I wanted to talk about Ezra Pound with you because I know you've been um, looking into Ezra Pound's history and whatnot. So, yeah, he's another. Um, he's another example of those fellow travelers who don't actually make much of a dent on a regime or make put much of a stamp on a regime, but get attached to it and sort of tag along. And uh, he, um, for those of you who aren't literature buffs. He was one of the leading modernist writers of the 20th century, one of the most influential figures. He was friends with T.S. Eliot and James Joyce. And um, he wrote uh, this sort of poetry, um, imagistic poetry that um, kind of scrapped rhyme and meter. And um, his um, his book of poems, the Cantos, that was like a uh, that's his most famous project, where he was trying to write a modern Dante's Inferno, basically of uh, all these passages, scatological passages about bankers and uh, politicians that he saw as destroying the modern world. So he got very deeply into fascist thinking, um, and. Uh, you know, uh, he was in some ways he was a very vulgar fascist because he believed in the protocols of Zion. He actually um, he really did not like Jewish people. No, like his big obsession was with use uh, what he called usura or usury, so lending at interest rates, and he believed that was the uh, the thing that destroyed that destroyed all of society. And he saw Jewish conspiracies everywhere. Um, and, I think he even saw that while he was in a mental hospital, right? Yes. He was, well, that's later. He became, um, at the same time, as a um, as a thinker, he was also, he seemed to see himself as a modern Confucius or a modern Dante, and he had a very, uh, he was very well read in the troubadours and in uh, Confucianism, and some of his poetry is unreadable to the average person because it's full of Chinese characters. Um and full of quotations from Italian and uh, Provencal French. And um, 
Anyway, he um, became attached to Mussolini's, uh, he ended up living in Italy as an emigre and um, he was originally American. And uh, during the Second World War, he started making these radio broadcasts where he used anti-Semitic obscenities and ordered, started telling, just basically raving against the world banking system and against uh, Semitic plots everywhere and claimed that Jews controlled America and all of this stuff and t telling US soldiers to desert their uh, to, to rebel and, uh, and not fight Mussolini. And um, what's interesting about that, that sort of those which he was later tried for treason for making those broadcasts, Mussolini didn't green stamp that. And it's unclear who in Mussolini's government actually got pound to, uh, you know, approved pounds uh, radio um, segments because... The Ministry of Culture, in other words, the Propaganda Ministry, they were sceptical about the value of Pound as a propagandist. He wasn't popular with Italians or he didn't have any real appeal to Italians. And um, his broadcasts were just rants, like they were sort of disconnected and rather incoherent rambling um, with a lot of, uh, you know, scholarly references to Confucius and to the Founding Fathers and rather arcane things that he didn't give context for. So for, you know, even for me trying to figure out all the references in these things uh, without a footnotes, I mean, <laughs> I, I can just imagine the average US soldier trying to figure out what he's saying. Um, it's clear, I mean, it's clear he was an anti-Semite. He was clearly complaining about Jews and about, uh, and claiming that the of all things that the protocols of Zion was true because it was a forgery because he believed like it was a double like some sort of double feint where they put true things in a forgery um and eventually they captured him and put him in a cage the US troops and they occupied and sent him to America for a treason trial and um pound then uh, now this is this is a very funny trial because he had um, initially he might have been sentenced to capital punishment for high treason and uh, they had to declare him insane and pound basically refused to take the, the uh, insanity defense uh, because like a lot of grandiose people, he tried to be his own lawyer and said, um, he even refused other lawyers because he said, only a man who understands Confucius can defend me. Only a man who's translated Confucius and, and written a biography of John Adams can defend me. And um, he, uh, so paradoxically, uh, he was now claiming that his broadcasts couldn't be understood, you know, took a special education to understand even though he was right, he was addressing apparently ordinary Americans on radio. Uh, so his broadcasts were intended. I mean, they they weren't very understandable, but he'd intended. He thought they'd be understandable when he was broadcasting, but now said that they couldn't be understood by anyone but him uh, when he was on trial, and um, that might explain why Mussolini's government found him useless. Uh, so it's not clear who approved the broadcasts, but they were um, the Ministry of Culture even advised him not to use his own name. And he just ignored them because they were, you have to understand these officials, even under fascism, they were basically diplomatic 
tactful Italian public servants who didn't want to cause trouble and, you know, were still looking out for him and hoping that he wouldn't get himself into deep shit. Um, and uh, so during the trial, the psychiatrists initially diagnosed him with a personality disorder, which was probably plausible. Um, but then they got, um, uh, they revised it in a sort of suspicious way to state that he was a psychotic and not uh, um, you know, that he uh, was uh, he um, didn't have personal responsibility for the broadcasts. Like there was what no... would the impetus for doing that be? To basically to save him from the chair. Um, and he wasn't exactly grateful for that. Like he kept complaining about the asylum. He was St. Elizabeth's Hospital where he was uh, staying in for years. But that was the only way under law, it seems, that they could have saved him from the chair, even though because he was a, you know, he had friends in the culture he was a literary celebrity basically so he did have some influential friends and um even though there's no real evidence that he had psychotic delusions like uh having fringe political views doesn't count as a delusion um they still said oh but pound is uh, pound is delusional we need to keep him in hospital instead of sending him to the chair and we're trying him and uh, so it was a very kind of, it was kind of a kangaroo court, but a kangaroo court in his favour. Um, and he still wasn't quite grateful for that because um, even though they were looking out for him, as everyone seemed to be looking out for Pound, like <laughs> Mussolini's government advised him not to, Mussolini's officials kind of tried to steer him away from the broadcasts. The Americans tried to save him from the chair by, you know, after his treason trials. So they were actually going soft on him. Um, meanwhile, he's calling these psychiatrists that are trying to help him. You know, he's combining the word psychiatrist and a certain expletive for um, Jewish. People. So it starts with a K. Yeah. A certain slur that starts with a K uh, that, ry that rhymes with psych. Um, a very bizarre figure. <laughs> yes. Um so he's, I guess he's a similar, it's in a similar situation to Dugan of this hanger on. He actually met with Mussolini, of course, but didn't make any credible impression that we can trace. And um, so these far, the far right has a, quite a history of these people, these intellectuals who um, um, they were courting power. They never really influenced it, but uh, were sort of um, hanging onto it by the coattails of these dictators and strongmen and um we see it in Pound, we see it in Evola, um, we see it in Dugin, and uh, they, um, they're very good red herrings. Uh, you know, of course, they, um, the media loves them as red herrings because uh, they seem to say, you know, here's the, the smoking gun. Um, also, also they, they have sort of an aura to them, right? Like, uh, you know, I had someone say to me once that when they read about Julius Evola, they, they thought of like a Bond villain. You know, James Bond yeah. 007 villain. And I think it's the same thing with uh, with Dugan, to be honest. I think they do have this, like, uh, image to them of being, you know, the sinister, you know, philo philosopher character. You know. Yeah, and the, this uh, he's definitely even has that Rasputin look to him with the long beard and following a uh, an unconventional sect of orthodoxy. Um, and uh, also, but also rumours that he's a Satanist and that he... Uh, one of the strangest things he allegedly wrote was claiming that Andrei Chikatilo, the um, Ukrainian Soviet serial killer, 
who uh, killed a bunch of children, um, that Chikatilo was practicing Dionysiac mm. rites. And, I did not uh, know about this. Oh my God. He, had he claimed on. that he was practicing some sort of rituals, pagan rituals for Dionysus and having a sacred merger with his victims or something. He apparently wrote and, that and here I thought it's just because Chikatilo couldn't get a boner. But... <laughs> so Jeez. yeah, he's, he's a wacko. Um, but of course that colorful aspect makes him very attractive to the media and people go down disproportionate like rabbit holes and, uh, I have to go down a rabbit hole to refute it. Um, and yeah, uh, that's, I guess, my view of the, these regime intellectuals. They, um... In closing, uh, I guess, what, 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 is the, what is the negative consequence of this sort of overvaluing or overestimating of uh, these sort of intellectuals um, as regime decision makers? What's the what do you want people to take away from this? Like, wh why is it, wh what's the danger in saying, oh, Dugan is Putin's Rasputin, or oh, Evola was secretly behind everything, or Ezra Pound was, like saying Ezra Pound was more important than he really was politically. What What's the danger in doing that? Uh, I guess it's a sense of priority because uh, it doesn't, it detracts away from the important parts of a regime that are keeping it running and, um, uh people uh ignore the real decision makers and even um it's also i guess a moral uh, kind of a moral distraction because you know the issue is is with the ukraine war it's a it's an issue of whether it's an abhorrent action or not on putin's behalf it's not an issue of whether it's influenced by dugan like it's not it's a false smoking gun that detracts away from uh um from the real question of the of uh, Putin's legacy as a leader and uh, his, the blood on his hands at the moment, to sort of these kind of trivial ideas of whether some uh, uh, pagan occultist <laughs> whispered into his ear and told him to invade Ukraine, and um, it also, I guess, makes it could lead to a risk that people would underestimate Putin, um, his real sort of. Uh, political pragmatism um, because if people imagine that he's simply acting on behalf of, you know, this batty guy, uh, it's, um, it makes, it makes him seem, you know, that um, possibly less stable than he is and less, um, um, I guess, less ruthlessly um, efficient as a you know or it makes his goals seem as if um it's bad enough for russia to be having this uh, you know war to preserve its sphere of influence over the ukraine it's not a question of um whether it really has a plan to start this eurasian empire so it basically muddles everyone's thinking about what the regime is doing and what motivates it and, i was going to uh, add real quickly if i could too i think the other issue is um it, it becomes a form of a conspiracy theorizing, right? Where, mm. oh, you know, Dugan is at the, at, at the, uh, at the, at the center of all of this. And if we could just get rid of Dugan, then the problem would go away when really, you know, political mm. problems are more complicated than like one person behind the scenes is the puppet master, you know? Yeah, it, it does. It, it does carry that risk as well because it um, plus, 
um, as we saw with Bannon and Evola, it, um, if we make the smoking gun about whether Bannon likes Evola, it uh, detracts from, you know, people's perception of his actual strategy of what he's like actually trying to, uh, his actual game plan, which Evola didn't create. And um, so it may be shady that he's an Evola fan, certainly, uh, but Evola doesn't explain what he's really doing or what he was doing at the time when he was advising Trump. And um, it also possibly uh, obscured aspects of Trump himself because uh, um, Trump got tired of Bannon after a while or it took relatively little pressure to make him drop Bannon. So Trump doesn't seem to be a guy who's really into traditionalist Catholicism or traditionalist mysticism. Uh, he's just in it for himself. He's just a you know a landlord turned politician, and um, it, it does detract people away from pragmatic aspects uh, certainly. And um, that conspiracism too, it does. Uh, there is a. You, I suppose you do notice that current of conspiracistic thinking that turns. Um, mistake confuses a, a set of theory with action and uh or imagines that um for instance with the, the whole claim about cultural marxism this is the left's agenda you know this is uh this obscure this thinker from way long ago is the father of what the left's agenda is that kind of those sort of claims of digging up some thinker and tracing uh, tracing the actions of people who ha haven't read him um to uh, this kind of occult discovery. So if that, uh, if that gives a good picture of what it's doing. So I, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, is there anything else you want to say to my listeners that we didn't cover? Or do you have anything that you'd like to promote that you're working on? Ah, well, um, nothing too big at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm just kind of... Uh, Luxuriating after um, uh, succeeding in the, the publication process for the transgressionists, and that is definitely a book to check out. Um, my um, introduction to that book goes into some of the things I've covered here, particularly Italy's subcultures, and uh, it's a book about a sort of insurgent cult of telepaths that wants to take over the world, and they meet in 60s jazz clubs. Um, I'm and already sold on it. <laughs> yes. Uh, so people, so these this sinister group, the a group of Italian elitists that uh, is practicing psychic powers. Um, it's quite a, it's sort of alternatively campy and dark. Um, and for other things I've written on this subject, you could check out a um, essay I wrote for Overland Magazine in 2017 called "The Quest for Primordial Whiteness" that goes into the the sort of murky history of Aryan mysticism or the that sort of Aryan mythology that the far right's adopted and how it's interpreted it in various ways in both Europe and America. And um, also some of the fundamental uh, flaws of that thinking um, or, the, or that attempt to explain social decline by reference to this primordial, primordial race attributes. So uh, that's, I guess the most relevant things I can mention. Well, Ramon, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Okay, it's been a pleasure. 
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ramon Galazov. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Within the next two days, we should have a new episode of the Parallax Views Varn Vlog crossover for Patreon supporters exclusively. That's me and C. Derek Varn, a friend of mine, discussing the latest in current events, and we'll be talking a little bit more in that conversation about Alexander Dugan and the far right. So if you're a Patreon supporter, you'll want to keep an eye out for that in the next day or so at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.